Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends. Feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's show, Pfizer has announced a temporary delay in the delivery of its vaccinations, but believes it will be back on track by the end of March. What does that mean for January and February? And what does it mean for those provinces who started to administer the second dose, hoping that more would be there to replenish the supply? The personalities behind COVID-19, the doctors, the medical staff we have come to know and love and trust. China calling Canada names again, saying we're exposing our hypocritical and ugly face. Find out why. And what's the president doing as he waits for Joe Biden to take over? It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. debate this weekend no no not the COVID-19 vaccination delays it's whether or not we should take down the Christmas tree no it's the Scott Thompson home show here's Scott Thompson lots of talk in and around uh, the COVID-19 vaccination up until today, uh, the big debate was because, again, everybody's yelling that these things are in freezers and the, what, what these are is largely the second dose. And some provinces, I believe B.C., Alberta and Quebec have decided we're not going to hold back the second dose for those people. We're going to try to uh, for 21 days. We're going to try to vaccinate as many as we can and then wait for the uh, the second dose or, or sorry, the uh, yeah, the second shot in order to to, to finish these people uh, with their with their prescription. However, um, obviously, now we're talking about uh, a, t- a temporary delay. This is due to. Uh, the facility in which we get our vaccine from, which is in Europe, is undergoing some changes because they're expanding. So they're going to delay production, a temporary delay. Uh, as I mentioned, uh, the minister said that won't affect second quarter. But again, what about January, February and March, which are obviously going to be the darkest days uh, of this uh, pandemic? And again, how does that address this, the, the question of the second dose and what we should all be doing here? Let's bring in uh, Dr. Andrew Buzeri, Executive Director of Health and Social Policy at the University Health Network and is with us now. Doctor, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Thanks, Scott. Appreciate it. Appreciate you making time. So your thoughts, Doctor, in regard to this temporary delay that has been announced through Pfizer, uh, as I mentioned, um, apparently it's not going to bother us for uh, the second quarter. Uh, your thoughts, January, February, March, and the second dose, the big debate. Yeah, I mean, Scott, there's no other way to put it than it, it, it is, it's worrisome. It's concerning on there being the delay. Um, yeah, I mean, I think, again, that there's been a lot of efforts on the ground to get out as much vaccine as possible. Um, there's been missteps along the way in various parts of the country. Um, you know, and I think what's, what's ended up happening in the situation that we're in is we've got um, a modest supply of vaccine with now some uh, real concerns about the availability given what's happened in Europe and with uh, the production uh, for the second dose or for you know, Pfizer vaccine generally. Um, and, you know, a delivery system that's not moving as quickly in a fragmented healthcare system. So uh, on both fronts, it's concerning. And um, the news today just adds more worry, no question. Uh, the procurement minister was quick to say that this won't uh, affect us hitting our target of getting uh, Canadians vaccinated by the end of September. But again, what does this mean for January, February, March? Yeah, look, I mean, we all hope that's true. Uh, I mean, I think the reality we've got now is that there are people who need the vaccine, health workers out in community, in rural settings, and other areas where there is COVID cases and people, um, again, risking their lives, putting it all on the line, who are not getting the vaccine. Um, we need to ramp that up. Um, and really in terms of, again, these, the predictions and speculation is how much it will disrupt or not. It, it's really too hard to tell, but the reality is right now, um, you know, we can study what has gone wrong. We can try to point fingers, but I think what we're seeing on the ground here with the vaccine teams is 
each hour, you're either saving lives or we're losing lives. And we're trying to do all we can to get the vaccine out. And, and, and we're going to need uh, all our parties, all our levels of government to come together on this uh, for the next six months, at least, to try to roll this out for the rest of the year um, to get every uh, Canadian who needs a vaccine, who wants a vaccine, vaccinated. Um, and, and that's just the major task that we have at hand. What about the debate in regard to that second dose, doctor? Obviously, we've seen British Columbia, Alberta, Quebec say uh, we're not going to hold on to the second dose for uh, for 21 days. We're going to get all of those vaccinations out again, just assuming that that pipeline would still remain open. Now we're talking about a temporary delay in that. Does that is that a good strategy? What's your thought on the on on blowing it all as opposed to waiting and uh, and prescribing this the way that Health Canada and the manufacturers have and the research, the science has suggested? Yeah, and you know it's a it's a great question. It's one, of course, where the the experts have really weighed in. Different jurisdictions have tried different things, are trying different things. I mean, we've seen a recent. Um, recommendation from Canada's National Advisory Committee on immunization to say, you know, we can see up to a six-week delay for the second dose. Um, we're seeing, again, various strategies across the globe, but, you know, even within the country. Um, and it's just, it's really too hard to tell. But I think what we really need to see right now is our policymakers listen to the experts on how to most rapidly distribute the vaccine what we can do that's most optimal with the supply we do have right now um, and only hope that this disruption is not as serious or not as worrisome as it appears because we, we are moving to the strategy. Again, the one thing, Scott, is that we've seen throughout this is that, you know, it, it's changing on a dime, right? What we're, what supply we're getting, what kind of information is getting out there. Um, so we really need to ensure that, we are all trying to work together and not pointing fingers or blame on how to get this done. And, and yes, that will be up to the public and people as we get through. But for us as people in healthcare and health workers, our focus is to get the vaccine out as much as we can. And we need that supply. And we also need the supports to ensure that all of us are being able to be engaged in getting it out. And right now, um, on both fronts, I've said, I think that's wanting. Uh, that being said, doctor, when the rubber hits the road, and if you are the one making the decision whether you empty the shelf or you save the second dose, does this delay not put that that strategy in jeopardy? It, it, well, I mean, it, it definitely puts a wrinkle in any strategy that may have been put in place first. And again, there's just too many unanswered questions. Not sure what the actual state of the delay is. Not sure how much for how many of the doses across the country that this impacts. Those are, that's the type of data that we need to see. And if anyone's making those decisions, would have to have. Um, and again, if this is something that it is serious enough of a delay, then yes, we have to be iterating our strategy on the ground every single hour uh, based on the information that's coming in. So, you know, I, I agree. I think that this is very concerning, but we need more. We need transparency here. We need more data as to what we can work with. And I understand the frustration from policymakers and you know folks across the country where in some ways you almost feel beholden to the vaccine manufacturers as to when you can get it um, and and them going through their own delays have of course very real implications here on the ground so we're all trying to work through that again for me as a physician out here uh, my my concern that you know is not partisan is not political it's just we need to get more vaccine um, and all of us are clamoring to do it in whichever way possible It'll be fascinating to see if this uh, temporary delay that has been announced today will change the province's strategy that have decided to go with the second dose now. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We're all, and, you know, we're all waiting on that. And, and again, I think, again, this is changing on a dime. This is not ideal, but this is, again, as you know, folks are being reminded, this is you know, the largest vaccine campaign in history. And um, obviously missteps are really costly um, but we have to keep focused on the end game which is again to get every canadian who wants a vaccine who needs a vaccine vaccinated uh, to keep uh, us all safe because that's the only we're going to get through this thing when talking about this delay uh the minister said and reminded of us that that's why we have such a diverse portfolio in case one falls through 
again, reiterating that we have more per capita than anyone else. Uh, that being said, when can we get access to that portfolio? When are those others going to be in our hands? Yeah, it's a great question. And for me on the ground, I don't know that. You know, I think we're all waiting and reading on what the status is with the Johnson & Johnson, what that looks like in terms of other supply that's coming in. Um, you know, it's a great question. And um, we don't know. I mean, I think that's just the, the truth. I think that uh, for us on the ground, we don't know. We're hopeful that people working, and I'm, I'm, I'm hoping, you know, I'm hearing it from the premier and everyone of people working their backs off to get this to, to the front line. Um, we have to hope that all levels of government are working together to have that happen and putting the pressure on the vaccine distributors the best they can on the manufacturers the best they can. Um, again, I just think we, it, it's frustrating for all of us, especially people out here where we're seeing inequities already in how the vaccine's being distributed. Um, it's, it's not for many of us going quickly enough. And in places where it is going quickly, there's not enough vaccine. So again, I think we want to see these questions answered. We need them answered. And really, again, the answer for all of us is just getting frontline providers vaccine so they can put it into people's arms and we can save lives. And that's really the state of what we're feeling on the ground. Obviously, uh, Dr. Modeling, Grim Modeling came out uh, yesterday from uh, the federal government and where we could end up. Uh, obviously, restrictions in Ontario, stay-at-home order. Many of us are saying, well, we've already been at home for 44 weeks or what have you. But really, this is sort of uh, this message and this this very stern message that we've been getting in the last couple of days uh, it really seems to be aimed at the 30% that are just fatigued. And there's obviously, you know, we all know what that's like and, and are just ha- have given up uh, on the protocol. Do you think this kind of uh, obviously, uh, 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 you know, uh, modeling that is, is very intense, is, is very truthful, is very shocking, will resonate with, with Canadians? I mean, I, I hope so. I mean, this is the most, dire situation we've been in and throughout the whole pandemic we're about to eclipse wave one numbers the model the the modeling that you've mentioned is grim to not you know horrifying so i think again the public has tried to do so much people have made a lot of sacrifices we need to see that sustained through to get us to hopefully a brighter summer i mean this is the reality that we're in Again, you can go back and point fingers, but this is where we are at with cases in Ontario, over 3,000 today, now dozens of deaths every day. This is very real. This is not a place now when you've seen the data, the heartbreak, the stories that can be compared to influenza. This is something that is now putting our healthcare system on the brink of collapse. And we need to ensure that the public understands that messaging but also, Scott, that we're supporting the public to be able to stay at home, to be able to stay safe. And that's from places around ensuring that there's the income supports to stay home, as we know there's been so much disruption uh, to the economy, but that essential workers are also safe with ensuring that if they're not feeling well, that they have um, the protection and paid sick leave to stay at home. So we really need to take an inclusive approach to this, that there's people who are really tired and may not want to, but there's people who also can't afford to and we need to ensure again on both fronts that people are getting are being enabled to do the right thing which is to keep each other safe and to prevent as many deaths as we can as we roll this vaccine out doctor what message do you have for canadians ontarians specifically who uh obviously heading into a weekend <laughs> january 15th we know how we usually feel this time of the year anyway and are be and are obviously very fatigued with all this and 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 are having a, a hard time grappling with this what message do you have for us as we head into the weekend look i, I hear you you know i i hear the frustration i hear the burnout um but we feel it in the front lines in the health system of seeing patients, uh, people, all of the heroic colleagues I have in the hospital, throughout community, to the shelter staff, everyone doing everything that they can to keep people alive, uh, to keep their families together, their loved ones alive, through the school disruptions and everything. I, we hear you. Um, we're feeling that burnout in ways that 
also some possibly can't imagine. But this is something where we are going to have to stay focused and stay in some solidarity with each other. And, you know, Scott, you know, I speak truthfully. It's hard when you're hearing about provincial leaders or politicians leaving the country while so many Canadians, so many Ontarians have made the sacrifice to stay where they are, not go on vacation. Um, and, and it's a gut punch for people. And all I can say is we appreciate on the front line. We appreciate it dearly of people doing the right thing. Many, many have. Many more, I think, as they see how serious this is becoming and can become. I hope you make that right decision to stay safe, to keep your own loved ones safe, um, and to keep our system intact because we're just going to need all hands on deck for the next you know, three, four, five months, hopefully, as we can get to um, – a brighter summer that everyone can enjoy and get back to suing each other. But, but right now, that just can't happen, and we need that resolve more than ever. All right, Dr. Andrew Bazzari with us, Executive Director of Health and Social Policy at the University Health Network. Doctor, thank you so much for the time. Thanks for the insight, and thanks to you and your staff and the crew that do such a great job at trying to keep us all safe. Please pass that along when you can. Good luck, Doctor. Will do. Really appreciate it, Scott. Take care. Be safe. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right. Uh, speaking of this global pandemic, uh, we want to talk to you about a global news special that's uh, on tonight. What lies ahead? A global news special for nearly a year now. Uh, global has been taking your questions about COVID-19 straight to the experts, epidemiologists, infectious disease doctors. You've met them all. Who've had their hands full on the front lines of this pandemic, but they also make time to answer questions about how Canadians can keep themselves and their families safe. Some of these doctors have become household names and even celebrities. Uh, Jeff Semple caught up with a few of them to discuss their experience and, of course, to answer some of your questions. Uh, joining us now, Jeff Semple, senior correspondent with Global News. He is with us now. Jeff, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. Hey, yeah, great to hear from you, Scott. Uh, yeah, doing just fine, thanks. Uh, living in lockdown with a, a one-year-old, but uh, <laughs> otherwise, uh, which is good, has its ups and downs. So if you hear someone screaming in the background, uh, don't, yeah. don't worry, everybody's fine. I know, I hear you, and the same goes with a dog, uh, barking dog, or maybe even teenagers uh, at this end. Uh, the, 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 the most extreme example I've heard is someone, a friend of my wife's, who uh, obviously working at home, and uh, they are a teacher, an elementary, uh, uh, spouse is rather an elementary teacher, and has three kids at home under the age of nine. Imagine that. Some of the challenges. It's always nice to hear those examples. (laughs) It makes you feel a little bit better, eh, Jeff? (laughs) Perfect. All all right. So, you know, you bring up a very valid point here. This is a a very cool angle uh, on this uh, COVID-19 pandemic. A lot of these doctors have been thrust into the limelight, some very begrudgingly so. They don't want this. That's not what they signed up for. Uh, We remember the case where I believe it was uh, Dr. Yaffe that, you know, she didn't know the mics were on and they said some things. Things. I mean, they're not trained media people. So tell us about this. This is a fascinating angle. Yeah, it is. And, you know, it, it's an interesting point because sometimes we take this for granted. But these these doctors who we've come to know, uh, familiar faces, household names. Uh, yeah, these guys didn't sign up for this. Right. In the sense that they, they're not spokespeople officially. Right. They most of them are, you know, working infectious disease physicians who are on the front lines of the pandemic, uh, working in hospitals. Uh, one of the, you know, probably most commonly known names, at least in Ontario, is uh, Dr. Isaac Bogosh, who, mm-hmm. you know, not long ago had to, had to, you know, we'd scheduled an interview and then he said he had to postpone it because he was working to resuscitate a patient. Um, so, right. like, this is the juggling act that these guys are doing, right? They sort of squeeze in these, these Skype interviews and Zoom interviews. Uh, obviously, they don't do it at the expense of their patients, of course. They, they often will try and do it first thing in the morning or last thing in the evening. They have families at home as well, you know, teenagers and kids and, and all of that. So it's, it's a lot, obviously, for these guys. They have taken on a lot. They make themselves available constantly. Some of them are on almost every single day. Uh, and so, yeah, we, we got a couple of them together, a few of them, actually, four of them, who, as it turns out, are actually old friends. Um, Isaac Bogosh, Suman Chakrabarty, Lisa Barrett, and Zane Chagla uh, from Hamilton. And uh, the four of them go way back. They've known each other for years, uh, did training and medical school together. And so I got them on for a Zoom call all together the other day uh, to talk about the experience and what it's been like and why they wanted to do it in the first place. So what are the common experiences between all of them? 
Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, they talk about, you know, as you say, the mic's not working, the not really sort of having to find their footing early on. Um, but, you know, they also like talked about doing it for similar reasons. I mean, they all really believe in the value of public health education, right? Uh, but I was a bit surprised to hear uh, how upset and and sort of uh, motivated they were by misinformation about the virus. So whether it was stuff they were reading on the Internet or seeing kind of blow up on social media or, you know, they talked about stuff coming from the White House and, uh, you know, Donald Trump. Um, and so that, you know, kind of encouraged them to, I think, step up and was it was large, a big part of the reason why they wanted to do this. Um, to begin with. And, you know, they've just sort of gotten the hang of it. And they talk about, you know, the struggle of, you know, we as journalists come in every day wanting definitive answers about a brand new virus. And, you know, I think the experts that we've come to trust the most are the ones who will admit what they don't know uh, when they don't know it. Right. Um, And, you know, I've been talking to so many of these guys for so many months now, you really do get a handle of which ones you can trust um, and, and which ones maybe are a little too quick to rush to judgment. And, you know, you know, you bring up a very valid point. And again, just covering this for uh, 44 weeks that we've been doing this now, um, people want answers to questions. There just is there just are not answers to or what you what the answer is today is something completely different tomorrow because the story is so fluid. Yeah. And I was actually just going to mention that because that's the other thing they talked quite a bit a lot, uh, quite a lot about is that they they constantly get hate mail these guys right i mean they get a lot of uh, positive feedback but they also get awful hate mail even threats um and a lot of that is because you know they're accused of flip-flopping and changing their message right and the masks of course is probably the best known example of that Mm. where early on in the pandemic um they didn't think that masks were going to be critical they were also worried about a shortage of masks among frontline workers uh but once that shortage was alleviated once they realized that this thing this virus does travel in the air uh, to a significant degree, they started telling people to wear masks and everybody, you know, wring their hands and says, oh, you, you guys are flip-flopping, you're changing your message. And, you know, as I guess, I guess Bogosh, I, Isaac Bogosh, excuse me, said, that's how science works, right? They're, hmm. they're, are, they're supposed to change their opinion based on emerging data. Um, and they've done that with hand-washing as well, where they're not enforcing that as much this time around. They're not making hand-watching as much of a priority in the second wave as it was in the first wave. And that's because we've learned that this virus is fragile. It, 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 it's not spreading as much, we think, through contaminated surfaces as it is through people having these prolonged conversations in poorly ventilated indoor spaces. So there are lots of examples where the advice has changed. And, uh, you know, they say it's changed for good reason because the evidence has changed because this is a new virus and, you know, we are learning as we go here. Uh, you talked about death threats, and I remember hearing about this prior to, I think it was prior to the holidays, where Dr. Bonnie Henry, who may many have said has the best bedside manner of any of these uh, people that have come out to speak uh, in front of the public, whether you know you agree with the direction they're going in or not, um, she was speaking that she was getting death threats. Can you elaborate a little bit more on that? Yeah, I mean, actually, I don't know if these guys, uh, yeah, I mean, I don't know if they'd received death threats, but they said they had received threats. So I, I should I should clarify that. I, you know, it, threats yeah. of some sort, yeah. No, but you're right. I mean, obviously, a threat of any kind is serious and, uh, and, and you know, should be taken seriously. Um, and, you know, I mean, it's funny, too, because we asked a few of these guys if they would mind sort of talking to us about their personal lives, right, in terms of why, I mean, we see these people every day. Who are they? Um, and, you know, why do they do what they do and, and talking about their families and that kind of thing. But for the most part, they're reluctant to include their families because they're some of them are a little bit concerned for their families. Um, right. Because they have taken on such a high profile on what has become a, a very controversial pandemic, uh, particularly with the lockdowns and businesses shutting down and all of that. And there's just like lives on the line, businesses on the line. And you turn on the news every night and these these guys and girls are, are kind of voicing their opinions. Um, so, yeah, you know, you could sort of see why this would be an emotional issue. Isaac Bogosh is uh, Jewish, uh, says he constantly gets accused of being the leader of some sort of Zionist conspiracy to take over the world. Um, I mean, you know, those of us who are used to being in, in public, you know, doing these media appearances, I mean, even as journalists, right? I mean, I, I have more than my share of Twitter trolls. Um, but these doctors aren't used to that. And so they've had to kind of get used to it. And, uh, and I think they've received more than, 
more than their share, that's for sure. Uh, and then all the ones that you're talking about here have done a, uh, have done a great job. Um, I, I can specifically remember what Dr. Bogosh said. It was either this week or the week before. They're all blending together to me now. Um, and he came because this was all predicted. We we were talking uh, prior to the holiday, saying if we don't buckle down at Christmas, uh, a week, two weeks out of that, we're going to see a a surge. And I remember seeing a clip of of Bogosh coming right out and saying, "This is exactly what a post-holiday surge looks like," and it was predicted. And I thought, "Wow, there it is, right there." There's you you can't make it much more clear than that. Yeah, that's it. And, and, you know, it's interesting because, um, you know, as I say, you know, you go to the doctor and, you know, just yourself and maybe it's something serious and you want to get a second opinion. Right. And it's, it's been interesting doing that in the COVID-19 pandemic context, you know, every week we're calling up five or six doctors. Um, and sometimes they disagree. I mean, sometimes their opinions don't line up. Right. And, Mm -hmm. And we're seeing that now in terms of the lockdown, um, you know, and and whether, you know, we're whether it's going too far, all these businesses being shut down, is it working? And, you know, I was talking this morning with uh, Dr. Suman Chakrabarty, who sort of feels like, yeah, maybe, you know, he's starting to worry that the the mental health and the physical health risks that that are a result of the lockdown, um, you know, sort of weighing that balance between obviously the health risks from the virus. Right. Um, and so, yeah, it's interesting. I mean, it's it, like a lot of these guys, um, I, as I say, the ones that we've come back to the most are the ones who are, are just seem to be more nuanced. They're, they're less, you know, they're, they're check, trying to check their own politics at the door. Um, they're, they're, you know, admitting when they don't know something. Um, and that, you know, they have families and, and friends, of course, as well. I mean, they're directly affected by all of this. So there's a lot of pressure on their shoulders. And so tonight on this special, um, at nine o'clock local time, I believe, um, yeah, we'll, we'll bring you in. I mean, we, we went to Suman Chakrabarty's house outside, of course, and this was before the state of emergency. Um, you know, and he busts out his guitar and he, and he talks about his own kind of personal <laughs> journey to get him to this point. Um, but yeah, it's interesting insights in terms of, you know, we're putting a lot of pressure and, uh, and, you know, looking to these guys for answers every day. So we'll bring you a bit of an insight into who they are and why they do what they do. Uh, one last question here, Jeff. You brought up an interesting point, and and I meant to ask this earlier. How do they, how do they balance politics, their own beliefs, what they think is right or wrong, uh, with the with the science, with the medicine? It, it's it's very difficult because they don't want to be confusing in their messaging either. That's right, and and you know the one like these these four, Lisa Barrett. Suman Chakrabarty, Isaac Bogosh, Zane Chagla, they're always very careful to wade into the political realm of things. And we'll ask them the questions, right? But they will, they will, mm-hmm. they, they work very hard to try and keep sort of church and state separate in that regard, right? The politics and the science, they're happy to tackle the scientific questions. Uh, but when we get into sort of health policy and, you know, what should that look like? They're they're much more careful now. Isaac Bogosh is you know a member of Ontario's vaccine distribution mm-hmm. task force. I mean he, that's his job now is to try and get as many shots into as many arms as we can in this province. Um, so you know he can speak with uh, with plenty of authority on that. Um, but yeah, they they have all kind of had um, I guess a range of opinions in terms of when we should lock down, when we should be opening back up. Does it make sense to be shutting down small retailers and leaving Walmart open? Um, they have opinions about these things, but they're, they're more reluctant to share them. And, you know, I think that's because at the end of the day, they're, that's not what their job is, right? They can help us make sense of the virus. Um, but they're a little more reluctant to start putting, pretending that they're public policy experts at the same time. What about the message? Because again, you know, we've certainly seen what's happened in Ontario with now there's a stay at home order. A lot of people are confused. Well, what does stay at home mean? Well, it means stay at home. But, you know, what, what are the exemptions? What are this? What are that? And, and you know, I, I even noticed the prime minister today used the phrase on his press conference earlier on, um, hang on, where is it? Reduce in-person contact. So in other words, stay apart. Is, is stay apart a better message than stay home? I mean, do they have any? Do they have any uh, uh, ideas on on what that simple message would be that resonates? Yeah, I mean, it's it's an interesting question, right? Because 
one of the in our segment tonight actually i'm not sure if it made the final cut of the tv piece because we had to make some edits but one of the questions that came from a viewer was worried about you know should i be wearing a mask outside or should i be even going outside and they all said these four that yes people should be outside and really uh, in their opinion you don't need to be wearing a mask outside most of the time as long as you're keeping your distance but that it is important to get outside and, and to get that exercise um, and, you know, has that message been lost by a stay-at-home order? You know, quite quite possibly, right? I mean, I think there's confusion, there's rampant confusion across the province uh, today about what people are and aren't supposed to be doing. Um, and, you know, Isaac Bogosh spoke specifically about fighting against the misinformation that I alluded to earlier, and he said that he thinks that they have failed in their battle to be louder than the confusing, you know, disinformation, misinformation about the virus that they have sort of failed in, in a lot of the messaging that they've been trying to convey. Um, and for him to admit that obviously speaks volumes, given how hard he's been trying to work at that over the past almost a year. It's interesting because many have said even, you know, the somber messaging that we're getting now is really, many are saying, well, I've already been staying home. Uh, Many have said that that the sober messaging that's coming out now is directed towards the 30% who just don't seem to be responding to anything. And you wonder if anything ever, ever will with them. Well, that's right. I mean, if and obviously, you know, you've got a concern in the second time around where do you have the level of public buy-in that you need to make a lockdown work in the same way that it did the first go around. Um, you know, Dr. Suman Chakrabarty has been talking a lot uh, and, you know, tweeting a lot this week about, um, you know, focusing more on the essential worker transmission, right? Because what he is seeing in, in, you know, yeah. on the front lines and his, his, his anecdotes uh, paint that picture, that he is seeing a lot of yeah. people who are essential workers going into their workplace, spreading the virus there, then they all bring it home to their families. So you've got coworkers and family members, basically, who are getting sick now. And, you know, locking down people, uh, you know, obviously isn't directly addressing that, right? So, you know, maybe we should be focusing more closely on that issue. Um, so it's sort of like if you think of the lockdown, almost one of my producers this morning was sort of talking about it as like chemo, right? It's like the, it's the chemo treatment for the cancer that is this, you know, this pandemic, um, it's the sledgehammer treatment, but, you know, Chakrabarty and some of his colleagues certainly promoting the idea that we should also be getting in there and targeting very specific organs of this and, 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 you know, addressing what they're concerned about, which is a lot of talk around the essential workers, uh, and, and workplace transmission, mm. in addition to, as you say, that third of society who it seems has, uh, has just had enough of this and, and stopped doing their part. Great point. Uh, Jeff Semple's been with us, senior correspondent with Global National 2021, What Lies Ahead, a global news special, 9 o'clock tonight. Uh, Jeff, interviewing some of the medical celebrities, for lack of a better word, that have come out of this and how they balance the medicine, the politics, and the family life of all of it. Jeff Semple, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Thanks. You too, Scott. Take care. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Let's talk about uh, China and our relationship with uh, China, which uh, obviously has taken quite a hit of late, as uh, China's reputation has all over the world, uh, even before uh, this global pandemic hit. Uh, Interesting uh, article uh, now that we're seeing uh, on the global site, Canada's ugly face exposed with new measures uh, and on forced labor. Uh, China is hitting back at Canada over its new measures on forced labor in China, condemning the move and stating that it expresses Canada's, quote, hypocritical and ugly face. That's what the China uh, Chinese embassy in Canada uh, said uh, uh, earlier on. The latest release comes from the spokesperson at the embassy on the heels of an announcement from Global Affairs Canada, which outlines a host of new measures in a bid to move in on businesses that are profiting from the forced labor in China. To talk more about all of this, uh, Sarah Teach is with us, international human rights lawyer and a senior fellow at the McDonald Laurier Institute and with us now. Sarah, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Thanks. Yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, with you being an international and, and an expert in international human rights a lawyer and such, let me ask you this question. Your thoughts, before we get to this, on uh, the recent announcement that came out this week that the Huawei CFO had her family, uh, her husband and two kids come over and visit her 
uh, in her Van- uh, Vancouver mansion over the holidays, uh, ignoring the travel restrictions that the rest of Canada had to abide by and and not travel uh, during the holidays, and uh, and enjoying that time with her family here. I understand that uh, some of them are still here. What are your thoughts on that? I, I think it's really, really interesting that she's getting treated so well, especially in contrast to the rest of Canadians. It's, you know, I, I it's sort of in line with Canada's policy on China to date, except this announcement on a trade uh, on forced labor is is a very positive step in a different direction. Why are we doing this? Is this does this somehow related to the two Michaels, or why are we standing up on our hind legs like this? It's a really good question, and I mean, we can only speculate, right? I, I, I do sort of uh, think that this may have something to do with the two Michaels. Maybe we're trying. Maybe we're hoping that if we treat her well, then they'll be treated better. It's, it's a little illogical, in my opinion. And you know, over and above the politics of this, um, that's one thing. But there's also we're in the middle of a global pandemic, and as you mentioned, as we mentioned, there are certain. Uh, restrictions in, involved in travel and quarantine and such that it's obvious they're not abiding by, including reports we're hearing that there's dinner parties going on with like 14 people at them, which again, against Canadian regulation at this point. Right. I mean, she is in Canada and she should be following Canadian law. And of course, that, that none of that should be happening. So any recourse there is, again, Canadians' latest poll out says we have a very, uh, not a very favorable view of China at all, and it's dropping into single digits uh, through the basement. How does this sort of information go over? I, I would like to hope that it only makes the public opinion worse and that that public opinion translates into shifts in our foreign policy. What are these new measures uh, against China and forced labor that were introduced? How does this change things? So, actually, it doesn't change as much as uh, some people may think it does. Basically, what is happening now is that the uh, Global Affairs is urging Canadian companies to do due diligence to make sure that their supply chains are not tainted by forced labor. But actually, that's not new. It's That's been around since July 2020. That was part of the new United States-Mexico-Canada trade agreement. And then beyond that, they are requiring that businesses that do uh, that conduct business in Xinjiang certify that they're not importing goods made with forced labor. But that's also sort of limited. It actually only applies to companies that are seeking federal trade promotion assistance. And then the third prong is that there's a study to raise awareness on forced labor in Xinjiang. And that's that's okay, but you know these measures sort of stand in contrast to what's been done in other countries that are stronger, like the UK and the US. I mean, the UK is actually requiring companies to do due diligence, whereas we're just encouraging them, and companies face a fine in the UK if they don't comply with that. In the in the US, there's actually an all-out ban on goods produced by forced labor in Xinjiang, and there's a presumption that goods coming in from that province are produced by forced labor, and the onus is then on the companies basically to prove that they are not produced by forced labor. So to me, those are actually stronger measures. And the measures that, that we've uh, brought in this week are very positive. It's a very positive first step, but it's actually, in my opinion, it's, it's really not even enough. Uh, surprised considering other allies are a lot more severe with China that they're calling us hypocritical and ugly face. Well, they're also calling these other countries hypocritical yeah. and ugly face, right? I mean, yeah. this, this reaction is really not surprising. They had a similar reaction to the UK this week as well, and I think we can expect those reactions to carry on. That's just the MO. Uh, you mentioned that a lot of these uh, policies had already been in place, but now we're chatting about it. Why Is this all part of the campaign of a tougher talk, a tougher stance towards China from Canada? Perhaps, yeah. I mean, I do think it is positive. You know, we haven't had enough tough, tough uh, talk, in my opinion. So I think that is a positive step that we shouldn't discount. But, but yeah, it's more style than substance. It's not. It's really just not enough. But it is a very positive first step. Uh, does China? And and I think I already know the answer to this question. But does China care that its perception? Uh, in the free world is falling drastically after, you know, just a, even a, a few years ago, China was the golden goose. Everybody wanted to be investing in China. And now the attitude has drastically changed. Is China aware of that? Do they care? It's a great question, and it's a better question than I have an answer for. I think, I think they do, 
to some extent. I mean, with these reactions, right, they wouldn't be reacting in this way if they didn't care at all. They'd probably just be ignoring it all. So I think to some extent they do care and they care about international institutions. Certainly we see that with their infiltration of, you know, the Human Rights Council and other international bodies. I I think they do care. I, I don't know if they care enough to change behavior. Hopefully, hopefully they do. How did we let them get away with this? Because this started very slow, very sneaky. You know, I mean, it's, it, you know, even when you think of the uh, uh, the Road and Belt Initiative and them going into other countries, spending all kinds of money on infrastructure, and then, of course, when they can't pay for it, they just basically take it over. Um, how, how do we justify what we've done so far? I mean, we've heard that China has its hands in our education system, our medical system. We're seeing that with with COVID-19, technology, 5G, all of that sort of thing. How did we let this country become so interwoven into our lives that we're at the point where now we can't break free? It's another great question. I, I don't know. I don't know how we let it get this far. It's you know, one thing that we have seen until very recently is that there really hasn't been enough media attention on these issues. And I, it seems to be changing, which is great. But, you know, I talked to friends about the Uyghur situation and many people have no idea what I'm talking about until I explain it. Right. So it's it's I don't know why it hasn't gotten enough media attention until quite recently. But, you know, regardless of why we let it get this far, I think this is a really great opportunity now that awareness is growing and public perception of China is uh, thinking this is a really great opportunity to engage in a fundamental shift in how we approach our China relations. You talked about other countries uh, already being on board this sort of action and some uh, handling it more severely than what we are, um, especially with a change in administration in the United States. Are we going to see more and more allies? It just seems like recently we've got together on this. Are we going to see more and more allies uh, banding together and and dealing with China that way? I certainly hope so. I mean, these issues are nonpartisan. They're, I, I would like to believe that a shift in administration just doesn't change policies that relate to international human rights. You know, we're talking about forced labor and mass detention and forced sterilization of Uyghur women. These are issues that I, I would like to believe that everyone will agree on and continue to agree on and continue to work together on. Uh, since you brought it up, and, 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 and again, obviously something that isn't getting a lot of attention, talk about the Uyghurs, talk about, give us a capsulated version and tell us Canadians what is happening here. I mean, basically, it's a, it's a modern-day genocide. Uh, the Subcommittee on International Human Rights in Ottawa declared it so in, as early as October 2020. We're seeing, uh, you know, like I said, forced sterilization, which is one of the indicators of genocide pursuant to the UN Genocide Convention. We're seeing uh, Uyghurs being rounded up and put on trains and images that are eerily similar to the Holocaust and brought to concentration camps where they, that's where a lot of the forced labor happens, right? It's in these concentration camps. Uh, We see them being, there's evidence that they're being tested uh, for blood and organ compatibility, which is an indicator of forced organ harvesting. There's just, there, there's evidence of many, many atrocities being committed in Xinjiang and it's part of a broader campaign of repression of this group that, in my opinion, doesn't amount to genocide. Oh, my. Um, World Health Organization landed in uh, in uh, Wuhan this week uh, investigating, trying to investigate the origins of COVID-19 and, and what has been done, how we've handled this uh, over the duration of, of this global pandemic. Your thoughts on that? Confident we will get the answers we want. Hmm. Um. You know, it's interesting because China's really not cooperating, right? So it's, I, you know, and it, that's also in contravention of, in a contravention of international law. They're not letting WHO officials have full access to information, which is hugely problematic. So in terms of whether or not we get the answers that we expect to get, I don't know if we'll get any answers at all. But even that, that- itself is a violation. That being said, we seem to be able to zero in on what happened with SARS. Um, many have learned from that, and clearly perhaps the Chinese, and that it being covering their tracks. Uh, do you think we'll get the same sort of answers that we got, for example, for SARS? I hope so. I hope so that eventually we'll, we'll come to some sort of uh, conclusion as to what actually happened and how it originated and how it spread and all that, all that stuff that we need to, we need to know about. What about China's influence over the World Health Organization? Many have questioned that in the past, especially when it came down to getting this information out at the beginning of the pandemic. Right. That's a really troubling allegation and something that definitely the World Health Organization, or actually more accurately, the Health Assembly 
uh, should really be looking at. You know, there's a legislation called the International Health Regulations that governs pandemic control, basically, by the World Health Organization and other states. And based on that legislation, state parties uh, to that document can basically complain about the WHO to the Health Assembly. So hoping that happens and hoping the Health Assembly investigates and, you know, gets to the bottom of, of all of that. Um, we, we certainly, through the science that we have, you know, have a rough idea how this started, uh, where it started, the, the relation to the Wuhan uh, wet market and such, uh, whether it's escaped from a lab, those questions we certainly don't have answers to uh, at, at this point. But it certainly looks like, at the end of the day, they are responsible for this. How does China sell that at the end of the day? I mean, we know what happened with SARS. How do they sell this again? to the world and and convince the world that they're a good citizen? It's a great question because, you know, even if it, like, it, there's, there's just such strong evidence at this point that they concealed health information and that they didn't cooperate with other states. They're continuing to not cooperate. These are breaches of international law that are clear as day. So I, I really don't know how they how they spin that. I don't think there's a real there's a good way for them to do so. Uh, speaking of spin, uh, talking about the two Michaels, uh, you know, my same concern question with them. Um, you know, if and and here's hoping and praying they 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 get home to safer soil. But mm-hmm. imagine the stories they're going to tell when they get home. That that that's not going to be a positive light for China. No, it's not. I mean, how they spin that is a little more uh, easy to predict, I believe, for me. They're going to say that they were, you know, they were charged with espionage and national security, various national security crimes, and that this is pursuant to their own criminal justice system. Of course, that's, you know, baloney, but that's, I imagine that's how they're going to continue to spin that situation. And obviously, and, and I guess we know the answers to these, they're very similar to what you've just said, but again, spinning the fact that uh, the Huawei CFO is in Vancouver and now having her family over for Christmas uh, uh, in, in the mansion, so to speak, while these guys are being held in, in, in squalor conditions, um, again, they're going to be asked these questions on the world stage. Right, absolutely. I mean, that contrast is just, it's a pretty terrible picture. So in regard to 5G, where do you think we're going with that? And again, it seems our government is very hesitant to say we're not going to be involved, yet oddly, the big tech companies here in Canada have already said they have moved on, that they're not interested. Why doesn't the government come out and make that uh, declaration? Probably the same reason we've been sort of soft on China for a long time. It's, you know, they don't want to come out and say that. But at a certain point, obviously, you know, not making a decision on that is making a decision. As you said, the tech companies are moving on. So I, you know, they clearly don't want them here in our 5G networks and just don't want to say so because they don't want to further piss off the Chinese Communist Party. Where do you see Canada relation, uh, Canada-China relations going in the next few years? And, and even relations, this is not just a Canada, uh, Canada-China thing. This is a China-the-rest-of-the-world thing. Um, where, where do you see the, this country going in the next few years? Uh, well, you know, I, I can't, it's hard to predict, but I'd, I'd certainly like to see uh, continuing in this direction of what we just saw this week, continuing to work with our allies and, you know, the UK and the US, Australia and New Zealand and working together to combat these international human rights abuses, to combat these uh, uh, this hostile type of diplomacy that we're seeing, to combat hostage-taking, it, you know, it, to just work with our allies in, in combating these, these issues. Uh, this relationship that China has with the rest of the world now, that doesn't seem to be changing anytime soon, does it? It doesn't seem so, no. Sarah Teach is with us. She is an international human rights lawyer and a senior fellow at the Macdonald Laurier Institute talking about Canada's relationship with China and China's relationship with the rest of the world. And, of course, uh, what has been expressed uh, recently in the embassy about uh, Canada, of course, putting, uh, I guess, more guidelines, more suggestions when it comes to forced labor uh, in China. Sarah, thank you for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Thank you so much. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. South of the border, uh, obviously, uh, coming up this Wednesday, the inauguration of Joe Biden. We've under- 
we're still in our minds have those images of what happened uh, with the uh, the riot demonstration, uh, invasion, insurrection at uh, Capitol Hill. Uh, fascinating watching uh, news last night that said, remember that guy with the horns and the whatever? Uh, his lawyer on uh, making the rounds on TV last night saying that uh, uh, he's not a bad guy. He just walked in through the doors like everybody else did. And he did that because the president told him to do that. And as a result, he wants the president to pardon him. It'll be inter- interesting to see uh, how that moves forward, considering that image, that person in the horns and the fur and such has uh, become one of the main images uh, in this uh, attack on Capitol Hill. Uh, where do we go from here? How do we get through the next days, few days, as the world watches uh, America I- inaugurate a new president? Let's bring in Aaron Call, Director of Debate at the University of Michigan, editor, co-author of Debating the Donald, and I do solemnly swear, presidential inaugural de- addresses of the last five decades. Aaron is with us now. Thank you, Aaron. Hope uh, Glad you're here, and uh, hope you're doing well. Uh, yes, great to be back. You as well. Uh, just, and I'm not sure anyone can answer this, Aaron, but what is life like for Donald Trump right now? What is he doing? How is he spending his time? Because we're certainly not really hearing from him. Yeah, yeah, it's, um, I'd say, a life of, of total isolation. Um, yesterday there were images uh, of the moving uh, trucks and vans that are uh, kind of getting ready to take things from the White House to Mar-a-Lago uh, after the January 20th. And, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a solemn time. I mean, he, he just became the first American president to be impeached twice. Um, many are, are blaming him for, you know, inciting what happened at the Capitol, which was you know, kind of the first time uh, that had been stormed and since 1812. He's not going to attend the inaugural address, and so it will be the first president over 150 years uh, not to, to do so. And so it's you know, kind of a, a bunker mentality where I, I believe that he's, you know, still in communication with a few close aides and, and loyal advisors and uh, he's still telling people that he won the election and it was, uh, you know, kind of taken away from him uh, unfairly and that, uh, you know, he didn't, everything he said in the run-up to the uh, storming of the Capitol was appropriate. And so it's a lot of you know, a lot of doubling down and a lot of, you know, continuing of grievance uh, politics and things like that. But it's certainly, you know, an, an isolated experience because uh, so many people have resigned or left. And it's really it's him and just a handful of trusted advisors that are left for these last few days of his presidency. You're talking about the isolation and the resignations. Uh, we've also heard of companies and uh, even banks that are distancing themselves uh, from the, pro- the president. Does he continue to lose steam here, uh, or uh, d- does does this movement continue? Because there's still the 70 million people that voted for for Donald Trump, it, it, and, and many are worried, for example, uh, attacks on other U.S. capitals over the course of this week leading up to uh, demonstration, uh, leading up to the inauguration, armed uh, protests and such. Uh, is it losing steam um, or, or not? Uh, as of now, yes. I mean, as you mentioned, uh, immediately after what happened at the Capitol, um, he lost, you know, many businesses had, had pulled away from, but not just him, but him and other Republicans that hadn't um, adhered to, you know, the, the elections, um, the, the golf tournaments, the city of New York, uh, several of his banks um, have all kind of um, left him. Uh, and, and many people resigned, you know, several cabinet members and, and other people that, that worked directly for him. Uh, we're in a little bit of a lull now. You know, he certainly has done things uh, that if he would have done immediately, uh, may have helped. I mean, he came out with a, a video after he was impeached that didn't talk about impeachment, but said that there should be no violence and that, you know, you must support uh, the police and things like that. And that was a helpful video. And if he would have said that in real time, you know, at one or two o'clock uh, last Wednesday, when everything's happening in Capitol, you know, we may have had much less violence. And so I do think he realizes the, the trouble that he's in. He obviously he's been impeached, which the trial for that is likely going to start around January 20th, the same day that Joe Biden becomes president. And so, you know, kind of how this ends, I think, will be determined by what happens um, in, the, in the next week or two. If there's 
you know, just because the security is greater and we don't have the additional violence in both state capitals and the U.S. Capitol during Biden's inauguration. And if he's acquitted in the Senate where they don't get a two thirds uh, conviction, then, you know, maybe then there could be a comeback because he's still perceived popularly uh, with the Republican base. But uh, right now, his in addition to his personal life, um, he's job approval rating is in the high 20s or early 30s, which is the lowest of his presidency. Republican support has gone down to the 60s or 70s, where it's usually in the high 90s. So, you know, it's a perilous time, uh, but the ultimate uh, verdict will likely happen in the next few weeks, seeing how smoothly the transition to power goes. And then also what happens with the conviction in the Senate, because that happens, uh, he may never be able to run for public office again. And he may even lose some of the benefits that former presidents get um, if he's if, if that happens. So a lot is yet to be told. Uh, many have talked about the the voters, the 70 million that are still out there that voted for him, that base. How do they feel about all of this? Are they equally divided? Excuse me, equally as equally divided as the Republican Party is, or are are they all united? How do they feel about what happened uh, on Capitol Hill? Because there's a lot of average-looking Americans there. And, you know, you got to think, well, where do they draw the line? When does this become not acceptable? Yeah, I think that that's a mix as well, because, you know, part of the problem is just the, the media and everything happening in the, you know, since the election. A lot of people believe, you know, that the election was unfair and both votes were stolen and, and, and President Trump was wrongly denied a second term. And so, you know, if, if you actually believe that, um, and that, you know, democracy is, is being stolen from you and your preferred candidate, you know, that may make it more likely for you to do something. And so just a lot of it is just um, misinformation, which has been driven by President Trump and, and many of his allies. And it's not uh, unexpected for people to kind of reach that conclusion. But there's others clearly that understand what's going on. There were many Republicans that voted to certify the uh, the results of the Electoral College or 10 Republicans in the House have voted against him. And so clearly there are some people that had stuck with him for the last five years, but have just kind of said, you know, enough, I'm done. We had a term when, you know, some good things for them got done, including judges and lower taxes and less business regulations and things like that. But, you know, let's move on to the future. But you also have a, a very big segment that are still uh, intensely loyal to him. And, you know, polls in the last week or so, even after what happened in the Capitol, still show that he's the front runner for the 2024 Republican uh, primary uh, over people like Mike Pence and others. And so the majority, I'd say, are still sticking with him just out of their loyalty. That's one of the things he's been able to do is really, no matter what he's done, no matter what lines he's crossed, he's been able to still have this, this big base of support. And, and that'll continue even once he leaves the White House. I think what a lot of people found astounding when watching these uh, the demonstration happen on Capitol Hill was just what some of the protesters were saying and how they genuinely felt that this had been ripped from them, that this had been stolen. Um, and, 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 you know, despite elections that have been going on for, you know, a bazillion years, exactly the same way, for some reason, this one is different. How does America regain the trust in its institutions that have built the great country that it is today? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's tough. I mean, I think part of it starts with the media. You know, now even Fox News is losing its audience to places that are even more conservative, like, um, you know, like OAM and, and Newsmax and, um, you know, the ways in which they, they cover these events will kind of lead them to uh, believe that. And certainly President Trump and many of his supporters uh, continually saying that that happened. But, you know, in some ways, it's just kind of a denial of reality that President Trump, just the way his ego and psyche is, is that even if he did lose legitimately, he can never accept the fact that he lost. You know, how could he lose to somebody like Joe Biden? Um, it's, it's just something he could never consider especially since other Republicans in the House and Senate did did much better than him. So um, I think we have to better try to educate uh, the, uh, the populace and, and have a more diverse you know, kind of uh, news setting. A lot of it is up to the elected officials, and, and you saw that, that even though the Republicans in states like Arizona and Georgia, uh, when they were a lot of pressure put on them to, to do the wrong thing and, and say that the, the election was illegitimate, that they – had a, a good job to explain exactly why the 
everything was accurate and they did double and triple checks with, with paper ballots and other things. And so um, we need uh, people to put the country over party, especially if they're in important positions in terms of running the elections and state secretaries of states and things like that. And so this didn't happen overnight and it didn't start with Trump. It's been something that's been going on, you know, for a decade or two. So it's not going to be able, the problem is going to be solved overnight, but it is going to kind of have to, you know, come a reckoning with, with what's happened and, and how we move on, you know, as a more united country in the future. Where does this leave the Republican Party? Because clearly when you've got people yelling to hang Mike Pence, and we certainly know, uh, you know, what Lindsey Graham went through at, at an airport and such, where does this leave the Republican Party? Is it dead in the water for the next decade till they figure this out? I wouldn't say that. You know, there have been previous uh, predictions of the um you know, the ending uh, of both the Republican Democratic parties, and they've been pretty resilient over the years. But there is a scenario where the Republican Party kind of breaks into two, where there's kind of just a Trump uh, party, those that are with him 100 percent, and then more kind of moderate Republicans. But the problem in the United States, where it's just a two-party system, um, really, you know, it's, it's just kind of a binary choice. And third parties have never been um, had success, um, maybe at some local levels, but certainly never for the presidency. So I think that, um, you know, I, if, if we don't have kind of a, a, a fracturing up that party, it's going to be about kind of detaching Trump from it. If the Senate uh, convicts him and he's never able to run again, then that means that the Republicans are going to have to rally around someone new uh, to be their leader in, in 2024, whether that's Mike Pence, you know, Nikki Haley, Chris Christie, something like that, then they'll become the new face of the party. And they'll try to do their best to, uh, you know, to get the party all, all on the same page. But it's tough because the Republicans now, they don't have the presidency, the House, the Senate. There's midterm elections coming up in 2022. And as you mentioned, as long as this thing would happen over the Capitol and all the consternation with Trump, all that exists and the party's not united, then they're going to have a difficult time regaining power. But uh, history has shown that every time you know, something's looking dismal and you expect something to happen that uh, – something unexpected then occurs and uh, before you know it, the, the power gets reversed. But certainly it's a difficult uh, time period right now and absent some kind of external action, uh, it's going to be a you know, miserable at least few years until the next election cycle. And, and a lot of this is determined on what or if Donald Trump says something between now and inauguration. I mean, that could continually change. That, that could uh, upset the course of, of, of uh, where this is going just by him saying something. Could it not? It could. Although one thing we've seen is that, you know, after Twitter took away his account and his 90 mm. million followers, it's been very difficult for him to uh, get, a, you know, a message across to the media. And it's not just Twitter. It's uh, Instagram and Facebook and YouTube and every, you know, real mass communication channel that he has has been taken away until at least the conclusion of the election. And so sometimes he'll uh, put out press releases, but those aren't as widely viewed. And he hasn't gone on Fox News or anything else. Um, and, you know, in some ways, maybe he's afraid to do so. And so certainly he has the potential to, you know, say something uh, that, you know, could cause, uh, you know, very difficult last few days. But if the past is, is prologue, then he's more likely with all of his kind of these levers of power taken away uh, for him to go somewhat quietly. He plans on flying to Mar-a-Lago on the, the morning of the 20th before uh, Joe Biden is inaugurated. And, uh, but he'll still be a, a powerful force uh, given all the, the 70 plus million people that voted for him. And he's raised a lot of money after the election for a, a new political action committee where he can uh, influence races in, in future elections starting in 2022 encourage primaries and try to be a kingmaker still in the Republican Party, even though he's no longer president. It'll be interesting to see how he enjoys that secondary or tertiary role and not being the emperor, per se. Uh, what do you think his legacy is going to be? <laughs> well, as of now, he'll probably be considered the worst president of all time or, or one of the handful of worst presidents, up with uh, James Buchanan and um, you know, William McKinley and a few others. And so history is not going to be kind um, to his his legacy and um, certainly the way in which it ended with the, the siege of the Capitol and the death sentence. And, you know, we don't know what additional information is going to come out um, at his Senate trial. And so there could be even future damning things. And uh, just in the lead into this segment, you know, talking about coronavirus, that's going to be another stain on his presidency. We're, you know, approaching 400,000 deaths in the United States and over 20 million cases and 
Um, even once he lost the election, he's basically ignored um, that. And, and Mike Pence has been the shadow president for the last um, you know few weeks. And so, uh, but I don't think <laughs> that President Trump and his uh, supporters are you know really going to care about what professors or historians think that they're going to be you know happy. Uh, and he's going to be, you know, if not a martyr, if you know somebody that was, uh, you know, viewed very strongly by his supporters, and that's what he said he always wanted to do was, you know, he never served in the military or politics. He wanted to come in and shake things up and and really disrupt the political scene. And he's certainly done that uh, for the last four years, and he'll be remembered for that. What about the rest of the family? Uh, career in politics? Can we see Don Jr. and Ivanka making their way in here? Certainly, that was the plan before what happened in the Capitol. Uh, you know, they've both of them have very uh, big political aspirations. Don Jr. was, you know, maybe the the most sought after surrogate in the during the presidential election. He really connected well with the crowd, and um, you know, there's talk of uh, Ivanka running for Senate in Florida, um, and you know, maybe uh, all of them, you know, eventually running for president. Uh, so yes, I think that. Um, both of them want to have political futures. The question is how how much what's happened in the last week or so has damaged uh, their brand. You know, there's negative stories leaking about Ivanka, how they handled the Secret Service. And she put out a tweet, you know, as the, the surge of the Capitol was going on that called um, those the mobsters patriots. And so they've kind of been uh, underground for the last few weeks. But uh, they will eventually emerge. And, you know, the United States political dynasties is a very common thing with mm. uh, the Bushes and the Clintons. Um, and um, and so it's I would certainly expect to see them uh, running for office or, or being a big part of Republican politics for decades to come. All right. Last question. The inauguration coming up on Wednesday. What are you expecting? Um, there was, a, I think, chatter at one time that the president might hold a gathering or rally to compete with this. Is he just going to slip out the door? Do we do we expect any more fireworks at inauguration? Yeah, I think uh, initially the thought was some counter programming that he would maybe announce that he's running in 2024 and hold a rally. I don't think that is going to happen on a large scale, but there is some chatter today that he may have some kind of ceremony at the air, at the uh, Air Force Base before his uh, flight departs to Florida, just kind of have some uh, well-wishers and fans see him off. And so there'll definitely be an event uh, in the morning before he departs, but it's not going to be anything of the scale um, like it was planned before what happened in the Capitol. But uh, but never we've learned never to make predictions, and you never know. So don't uh, hold me to that if uh, something blows up. I hear you. Stay tuned. Aaron Call has been with us, director of debate at the University of Michigan, author, editor of Debating the Donald, and I do solemnly swear presidential inaugural addresses for the last five decades. Aaron, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Thank you. You too. Anytime. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.